probably help me with the hymn that says, Oh, for grace uh, to love him more. Uh, if you can tell me which hymn that is, I remember singing that. Um, and that's kind of what I've been overwhelmed with this week as we're continuing through John. Uh, I had planned to sort of move on to John 14 uh, this morning, and then I shared from the end of John 13 last Wednesday night. Uh, but the Lord's just had my heart camped out there. Uh, and I'm humbled in some ways uh, by realizing how much of the fullness of the love of Christ um, that I have yet to know, um, and humbled as well as by the taste of the love of Christ that I have come to know. Um, and it just seems so central to me uh, of all uh, of the Christian faith, so central to my understanding of so many other things. And so I wanted to spend some more time on that, particularly on Jesus' words in verse 34 and 35 of chapter 13. I had kind of made the case Wednesday night uh, that during the Lord's Supper or during the supper that they were gathered, the Lord uh, really establishes himself, uh, really demonstrates or John communicates in regards to him of his exalted status, but yet having been in that place that he lays his garment aside and and takes to him a towel, uh, girds himself with a towel, goes around and washes the disciples' feet. And I made the case that he began in chapter 4, 13 by saying, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, <clears throat> that he would depart out of this world to the Father, in this phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so it seems to me that John wants us to understand something about what unfolded in his narrative here and then the events that took place, that there is somehow undergirding that the extraordinary love of God. Uh, Brother Brian, I was, I was trying to think of the song this morning, but I kept having it, but the song you guys sing, The Reckless Love of God, and I know there's some controversy over saying that, but it is so extraordinary that from our perspective, it would be utterly reckless to love that way. Uh, so I, I appreciate the song in that sense that it communicates in our perspective how extraordinary is the love of God. And that seems to be what John in his narrative here is setting the stage for. And then he goes immediately into Jesus stepping aside, as it were, a moment and taking upon himself the form here of a servant and washing the disciples' feet. And then after having done that, he sits down and he takes his place again and he exhorts them to do to them to one another as he has done unto them. But then we come full circle, as I shared Wednesday night, to verse 31 through 35, where Jesus seems to bring the whole issue back to, to his love. And so my understanding would be that the foot washing was not the point. It was a demonstration of the love of God, the love of Christ. Uh, that, and it was the only way that he could demonstrate it in an exemplary way. Uh, but the, the validity and the power of that demonstration was about to be purchased, as it were, upon the cross. His hour had come. And so there's so much going on there, but I think it's rooted in the love of God that was about to be on display in the hour upon the cross. That is the, that is the root of the servanthood that they were to exercise towards one, one another. In fact, the servanthood was the manifestation of the love of God 
purchased or would be poured out into them by the works of the cross. So I think that's what's happening here. So picking up in chapter 13, verse 33, I just want to concentrate on those three verses there. Jesus says to them, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And this verse, a new commandment I give to you. Now, let me just pause there, but that's quite an extraordinary statement. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he communicates in verse 35 the, how critical this commandment will be in that by obedience to it, it will give evidence. He says, by this, this referring to what he's spoken and what he's about to say again, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us this morning in the speaking and in the hearing. There is nothing eternal, nothing sufficient, nothing adequate to equip us to live a life that would glorify you other than that which is consistent to your truth. So help us. Lord, I pray for those in this room. I know we come into this place with different circumstances, different things that we are dealing with in our own lives, different struggles. Lord, as the song we just sang, Father, there may be uh, trials and tribulations that we are going through even at this moment. But Father, I pray that your truth here, especially this truth of your love, would penetrate through those things. Lord, help us to the end that Christ might be magnified and exalted in our own eyes and in our sight so that we might be encouraged and that we might be moved to be more faithful to follow him and to receive of his fullness. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Give me a drink of water. I'm scratchy-throated this morning. I wanted to take a minute to kind of explore in verse 34, uh, really kind of an exposition, as you will, or an exegesis of the passage, because I think it's critical, and I'm weighing a lot on this idea that this is a new commandment. Now, I can't tell you how much this week that, is, that has intrigued me because there was already a clear commandment. In fact, in one discourse, a lawyer asked Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? And so the lawyer says, well, they say, I'm to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and my neighbor is myself. And Jesus says, you are correct. Go do this and you will live. And then he starts speaking then of the good, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan parable in regards to that. So it was, a, it was already a command there to love your Lord God with all your heart, soul, and all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And, but why does Jesus then here say, I'm giving you a new one? This is new. You already know you're to love the Lord God with all your heart. It's in the law. You already know the law is supported in Leviticus 19.18 that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You already have it in the law, but I'm giving you something new. So for me, that just said, well, what's new here, Larry? What's new about this? And how is it related to what is unfolding in the hour in which Jesus is? And this is why my heart came back and camped out on this. 
Number one, in verse 34 there, this is not to be optional. It is not an option. This is a commandment. And so there can be a dutiful fulfillment of it. In other words, he commands it. I am a, I am a servant and a disciple, therefore I will follow it. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at a commandment. In fact, I'll point out to you, but there's something new about this that'll make it not enough to merely do it by duty. Uh, we were talking Wednesday night, and I've talked in conversations with people numerous times, in fact, with Hope this morning, but I said, if I loved you merely as a matter of duty, without any affections whatsoever, would you appreciate that love? Our marriage would last just as long because I'm exercising it out of duty. I could give her an anniversary present every year and say, I'm fulfilling my duty. Well, she wants me to love her. And it's different. And so this is a new commandment. They had a commandment. They didn't fulfill the commandment. In fact, it was part of the covenant relationship they had with God, and they did not fulfill the commandment, and as a result, were not allowed to enter into the promised land. That is the law. He asked the lawyer, what's the law say? And the lawyer knows what the law says. And Jesus says, okay, go do that, and you will live. Jesus understood that the lawyer wouldn't do that, and he wouldn't do it in perfection. So Jesus has a new commandment. So we have Deuteronomy 6, 5, by the way, is the first one, Leviticus 19, 18. Here's what I think is new about this commandment. He says to them, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That's obvious. You love your neighbor, you love God, and one another comes in the midst of that. There's a brethren, uh, they were to love their fellow Israelites. So that's a, that's a given. So that's not the new part. He's not adding, oh, by the way, while you're loving your enemies and loving the Lord God with all your heart, you ought to love one another too. I mean, that's a given. So that's not the new part here. Here's what's new. Even as I have loved you. That's the new part. I touched on this Wednesday night. That's what's new. By the way, that's what's radical, and that's what, from our perspective, as the song says, is reckless. It's dangerous to love in that way, from our perspective. That's the new part, to love even as I have loved you. And that's what's been carrying me along all this week because I began to evaluate. In fact, I was sharing with the children as, as preparatory to the message this morning about listing who they loved. And they, we went down the board and we was writing mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and family and siblings and, and even all the way down to our dogs. And what was out of the list was God, enemies. You know why? Because that's extraordinary. They don't think in that way. God is out there, and I love him generally as a principle, but I'm not an experientially loving God. And to love my enemies is out of the question to the natural man. But I love mom, and I love dad, and I love grandparents, and I love my brothers and sisters, and I love my friends. You see what I'm saying? That what's new here is the condition in which that love is to be given, which is as I have loved you. That's what's new. That's what's new. I summarized it this way. It's, a disciple's love is peculiar in that it both arises from and is exemplary of Christ's love for that disciple or for him. That's what makes it unique. 
And so in this passage of Scripture, he says to him, this is a command. This is not optional. You must love this way. And you must do it in the way that I have loved you. This is the character and nature of the love which you must extend to one another. If, in fact, you are my disciples. And that tells me that those who are not his disciples do not have the capacity for loving that way. Those who are not believers have love like the world loves. And they may have love even as a command in the old law, but they don't have the capacity or the ability to love as Christ has loved them because they have not themselves received the love of Christ. And so they are not capable of loving this way. And it's this peculiar, different love specific love that originates in Christ as a disciple of Christ that sets us apart from the world. That's why I called the message this morning a distinguishing love. We are to love in a very distinct way that is clearly and evidently not the love of the world. That's a command. So if you and I leave here today and say, I'll work on that as a matter of of just working on something, we are not feeling the weight of what Jesus is saying here. It is a command. This is the means by which the world will know that you are followers of me if you love one another in the same way or in the same manner as I have loved you. In some ways you could say our love for one another should be an extension, an extension or perhaps a magnification of Christ's love for us individually. I should love you in, in reference to God's love for me in Christ. Here's what I think was striking as well. Do you notice that he says of the law, the lawyer says, we're to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, as I, and our neighbor is ourself. That's the standard. What's new here is Jesus changes the standard. He doesn't say you're to love the Lord God with all your heart and your one another as yourself. The standard has changed. Now the standard for how I love you is not how I love myself. The new standard is how I love you is, is determined by how Christ loves me. That's a very, very different standard. No longer is my own self-love the guiding factor in regards to how I relate to my neighbor or to one another. Now it's been elevated. It is the love of Christ towards me that is to guide my expressions of that love towards you. That's very different. And I would submit to you this morning that not a single person in this room is capable of that apart from having received that very love of Christ. That's why... The world looks at that and says, that's distinctive. We all love these. In fact, Jesus says, uh, he, he says in one place, if, in Luke, I believe, he says there, if you love only those who love you, uh, what have you done different than the world? Even the world does that. If you lend to those who can lend, can pay you back, what difference is that? There's nothing distinctive about that at all. But when you do these things to someone who has no possibility of repaying or that they can't or they can't reciprocate that, yet you do it anyway, that is distinctive. That's distinctive. So how do we love one another? As I have loved you, Jesus says, 
So the new standard is no longer as you love yourself. In fact, in our world today, the self-hatred would not suggest that there was a very much love extended towards others. In fact, there's a self-loathing that I think is rooted in our own instinctive recognition that we are fallen creatures and deteriorating. And most of what we call self-esteem these days, I think, is merely a facade to conceal the fact that we feel rotten about ourselves, which is right. in our fallenness. I've always said, even back when Jessica was in grade school, they were stressing self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem. And I remember saying, the kids don't need more self-esteem. That's their problem now. Their esteem is too high. What they need is a Christ esteem. Let them learn to value Christ and their their idea of themselves will fall into the proper place. Paul himself even says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So there is a way you ought to think about yourself. Just don't think more highly than that. And we live in a culture today that it keeps exaggerating and lifting up how they think about themselves to the point of ridiculousness in our day. Love like Christ loved us. I just want to make this morning as part of my message four assertions in relation to that that I think are soundly biblical. And I don't want you to think about this morning in terms of of God's love, Christ's love. I'll read the statements this way. He loved us. We love him. We love one another. And we love our enemies. Just three statements that I think can be borne out very clearly in Scripture. But there is a, there is a progression that I see to those things. And that's what I want to share with you. You can go ahead and turn with me this morning to 1 John 4, 9, which we'll, we'll get to. Or four, beginning in verse seven. But the first of these assertions is critical and foundational to all the rest. He loved us. Period. Standalone reality upon which all everything else is grounded. Nothing stands if this doesn't happen. We won't, we won't reach up to him because we're blinded to him and we don't see him. We'll grope around in the dark for something that we know is not in and of ourselves, but we are blinded to the reality that he is the thing we're groping for. We will not ascend to him. We will not initiate a relationship with him. The foundation of your existence today is that he loved us. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us or among us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 3, 1. John says, Behold what manner... Of love the Father has for us. That we should be called the sons of God. So it's the love of God. He loved us. He loved us in the manifestation of His love being in Christ. Not only in the incarnation but the life and ultimately the death and propitiation He provided for us. That is a manifestation of the love of God. So overwhelming was that love that John says, Behold 
Look at the manner of the love that He has bestowed on us. That those who are rebels against Him might become sons in the family of God. Oh, what love the love of God has given to us or has extended to us. Romans 5.8, you'll know very familiar, familiarly that in this the love of God was demonstrated. That in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ dying for us while we were in rebellion against Christ is itself a demonstration of the love of God. He loved first. Now any attempt you make to love one another, love your enemies, or, or, or love God back is groundless without that reality. And if you're going to, as a matter of duty, fulfill the commandment Jesus is giving to the disciples, you must first return to the reality that He loved you. And until you embrace that initiatory love of God manifest in His choosing you, you will never, you will never love Him or love one another or by all means love your enemies. You can't do it unless He loves you first. We sing the song from childhood, Jesus loves me, this I know. We don't start out saying, I love Jesus, this I know. No, the foundation is that Jesus loves me. This I have come to know experientially by the word and experientially. Jesus loved you. If you start anywhere else. What manifests itself and what fruit is born from that will be a bitter fruit. And it will not fulfill this command of Jesus. In fact, I think the reason he makes it a command is because he was about to go to the cross to make the obedience to the command possible for you. Otherwise, it's just a new law like the Old Testament that you would never fulfill. Jesus made this sort of love possible. But you have to begin with him. He initiates that particular love. Number two, because of that and grounded upon that and upon that reality, we love Him. Uh, I asked the kids this morning, uh, after they made their list, kind of in, a, in, in application, well, why didn't you put God on the list? And why didn't you put enemies? Because that's what the Bible teaches we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. So why don't the kids put God and our enemies in that list of those whom they love? And I think it's probably the same and true in the lives of adults is that we love Him to the degree in which we embrace, comprehend, apprehend, experience His love for us. And the children are not experiencing His love for them as they are their moms and dads' loves for them. That's an experiential love for them. So when you ask them to list out a name of, of the names of those they love, they automatically list those with whom they have an experience of love. They have been given love and they have reciprocated with love. Their love for them and their marking them on the top of their list is directly related to the reality of them knowing the love of that person towards them. That's why I think not just for children now, but for you and I, if we weren't thinking religiously, we probably wouldn't put God on our list first. And we certainly wouldn't put our enemies on that list. We would probably make out a list very similar to them. My husband, my wife, my children, my family, my church family, my, my co-workers, my friends, my neighbors. And that's frightening to me 
Because if there's a correlation between our loving God and our experience of His loving us, then, then we, we, will not, we will not be able to do the second unless we apprehend the, the fullness of the first. In fact, to what degree we do the second, love Him, will be related to the degree to which we experience His love for us. I believe they both rise at the same level. 1 John 4, 9. Notice he says there in that passage, by, the lo- by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. So we love Him and we recognize that His love was manifested in us. And as a result of that, we, we receive the love here. 1 John four nineteen, I think, is most clear. It says very explicitly, John says here, we love because He first loved us. So the the response to his love, which is the cause, the response is we love. And I think he means we love him, but not only him, but we love one another, he goes on to say in this passage. So in other words, the second part of this sequence is God initiates it in that he loves us. And when he manifests that love for us and provides Christ for us as a propitiation for our sins and brings ourselves into fellowship with him, the natural rightful response is we love him. I've shared my testimony many times in this church through the years, but in my conversion, at my regeneration, at the moment that I felt the weight of my sin, it's as if God just shifted that upon me and I felt just for a moment the, 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 justify, the justifiability of God in my eternal condemnation in the worst of hells. And there was a weight that sat down upon me, almost a resignation that this is where I belong by choice. In that very moment, I was convinced that even in that place, I would have to bow the knee and confess right in the midst of hell that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even while I endured the condemnation and the justice due me for my sins. At the moment of that most weightiness and crushing feeling, God interrupted that with a with a vision, you might say, or at least a a spiritual revelation of the glory of Christ in that moment. And in that moment, oh, I loved Him. Oh, how I loved Him in that moment. No one else but Him, by the way. Family and wife and daughter and family and career and friends and acquaintances, even church family, all those faded away. And in that moment, I love this Jesus and I cannot be satisfied unless He is mine and I am His. That's regeneration. And I don't think that you can properly love one another unless you have received, apprehended that love. And I say to you already, I fear that I have only tasted of the glory and the fullness of that love. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 2, Oh, I bow my knees that you might know the height and breadth and and width and depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Paul was transformed by this apprehension and beholding of the depth of the love of Christ. And oh, how he longed that believers would experience the same thing. So that's the response to God having loved us. Let me ask you this morning, do you love God? Is he on the top of your list? If someone said, rank 
write down all those whom you loved. Would your instinct say, God, I love God. I love Christ. And then you begin putting those under. I mean, Jesus really calls our attention to that when he says, whosoever does not hate mother and father and husband and wife, yea, children, yea, even his own life cannot be my disciples. Why? Because they are not loving God supremely over all. The right response to God's love for you is your love for him. And the degree to which you feel that, if you wouldn't have put his name on the top of the list, if you would have put it down, if you would have had to been reminded to be putting it there, if you are not experiencing it, not just by faith, but in your affections, if you are not loving God to a higher degree, it is because it is to the degree you are loving Him to the degree in which you have beheld or apprehended or comprehended His great love for you, which is exactly why I think Paul said, I'm praying that you may know that. The depth of his love. Because the way they loved one another, even their own lives, was going to be directly related to that. And the church, let me say this, the church can't be the church and loving one another until they apprehend, comprehend, experience the love of God. That's why so many churches have gone wrong directions. Because they're trying to fulfill a command while not having experienced this love of God, perhaps not even in regeneration, but even in regeneration, perhaps not in a more fuller way in which would transform their lives. He loved us. We love Him. And in that relationship, I think what follows is we love one another. 1 John 4, 9, I've already mentioned that, but he says there in the New American, he uses the word in. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, within us, or some translations say among us, or whatever the case, in our presence, in, our, in, in, in the company of these gathered here today. The love of God was manifested in that company by this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through them, through him. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Remember now, the epistles were prior to the writing of the gospel. And so early, early here, John is already saying things that he's coming back in the gospel and sort of summarizing when he says there, when John records his words as saying here, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. In John's understanding, I think he was comprehending what Jesus had already been teaching them in regards to the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ. So we're to love one another. Verse 11 Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So nobody's seen God, not even the lost world, but if we love, as Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of John, if you love one another as I have loved you, then they have a demonstration or, as it were, a, a portrait of the love of God when they look at you because you're loving in a very different way than the world. In fact, the world would call that reckless and radical love, laying down your life for others and, uh, that aren't your immediate biological family. That's, that's out of the world's mind. If you love one another this way, 
then the world will recognize and in, in fact see a portrait at least or see the glory of God shining forth from that. They've never seen God. The closest they may ever see of God is the love of God operating within the body of Christ among those who love one another with the love wherewith Christ loved them. That's why love is so critical. I was thinking about this in the context of 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says an extraordinary thing. If I have all of these things, if I have all knowledge and prophecy, and if I have everything that the church and the world would benefit from, and I don't have this love, I am as a clinging gong. I am as nothing because this love of God operating within me in my knowledge is 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 illuminating or activating of the very knowledge or making the knowledge that I do have instrumental to the glory of God. Without love, that's not possible. Without love, I think a lot of that teaching will simply lead to legalism because it will be impressed upon those as a command rather than a pointer towards the love. In verse 16 We have come to know him and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So we love God. God loves us. Our response is that we love God. And that as we love God and experience the fullness of God's love, that turns outwardly and we begin to love one another as God has loved us. And in that process, the world sees the glory of God manifested in the church and they identify in the body of Christ a very distinct and unique love that is not present in the world. In fact, it is not possible in the world apart from union with Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of the church. And if we don't have that to this world, we are nothing but clanging gongs and cymbals that mean nothing to the world. And even if they embrace principally some of the things we teach, they will do so to, the, to a point of legalism and thus destroy themselves in that manner as well. They will not come to know the love of God, but by the providence and sovereignty and grace and mercy of God Almighty. But when they do, this passage indicates to me that when they do, They love God and the love of God, the God himself takes up residence in their hearts and God is love and therefore they cannot truly be believers. Later on he says, if you say you love God and hate your brother, plainly you are a liar. You're not just lying, you are a liar. Lies pour forth from a liar and he's going farther than saying you're lying in that area. He's saying if you say you love God and there is not this sort of love in your heart towards your brother, you are a liar. You are deceiving others and you are deceiving yourself because this love does not flow out of the heart that is experienced and, and beheld the love of God for itself. You cannot help but begin to love others. You know, one of the things that's helped me most through the years in this sensibility of God's love for me is that when I see others, even those who are enemies and who would align themselves against me, and though they are unjust in their accusations or whatever they may be, and though they may be unjust in their hatred of me for no cause whatsoever other than their fear perhaps, Whenever that extended towards me, there is, a, there is maybe that fleshly initiative that says, well, I need to defend myself. But somewhere along the line, because of having experienced God's merciful love towards me, I, I find myself more 
loving towards those people because I began to think of all those years that I spent in darkness and was like a pinball in a machine, repulsing or recoiling from every stimulus in life to, to amount to nothing at all. And the lostness and the misery in that moment, and my heart begins to feel compassion for that person. Here's what I'm saying. If I know not the love of God, that's not in me. That's not in me. I'll say things like, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them as I shared Wednesday night. I'll say things like, well, love's good, but we have to have boundaries. You ever heard that one? I read a whole book all about boundaries, and they were setting boundaries. And I asked myself at the end of that book, where was Jesus' boundaries? I mean, where's the boundaries for a man who says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Didn't seem to be setting up boundaries. To me, the only boundaries was the sin that blinded us to his glory. And those boundaries were put in place by our own fall and by Satan himself. Jesus came to defeat the Satan who blinded us to his love. Chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment. Here's John, almost a repeat of what he says in, in John chapter 13. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now that's, that's extraordinary enough. That's extraordinary enough. Uh, I was sharing with the kids, uh, we're funny. Um, and some of you that I've talked with will relate to this, but we could spend, I spend my whole life with my wife. <laughs> 36 years, 24-7. Some days we have lots of conversations. Some days we say very little to each other. Some days we just sit down and eat and we watch TV. And some days are exciting. Some days are just dull. But I spend my whole life with her. And that doesn't bother me at all because I love her. I don't want to spend my life that closely with anybody else. Same with my family. I can spend hours with my family because I love them and I experience their love for me. But how many of us will stay three hours today in fellowship with one another? How many of us would do that? Well, I think it's directly related to the... To the to the de degree of our love for one another. And Jesus is saying here, they're not going to know you're my disciples unless you love each other like this. Do I think I love my wife more than Christ loved me? Do I think I love my family more than Jesus loved me? Jesus said, you're to love one another as I have loved you. Well, if I love you guys as Jesus has loved me, I will, I will be happy to spend time with you. But when we feel that reluctance to do that as the body of Christ, you know what happens? We, we, cite that, we cite some other reason for that rather than letting the arrow point to the heart. The problem here is I feel this way because I don't love you as I ought. And I don't love you as I ought because I love you to the degree which I, I am experiencing the love of Christ in my own life. You know where it drives me? To my knees before the cross and say, like Paul, Lord, I bow my knee that I might know the height and the length and the breadth and the width and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses understanding because I cannot love these people this way unless I see and experience your love for me. And when that happens, I do think church fellowship and church life and community will be very, very, very much different than what we've grown accustomed to in our day. Here's my point this morning. It's rooted in the love of God. 
It's rooted in the love of God. And you had no access to that, no warrant for deserving it. You had, you had no claim upon it whatsoever in your sinful nature and in the sins that flew, flowed out of that sinful nature. You and I were all condemned under condemnation for our sin and had no demands whatsoever to make upon God. But yet God in His grace and His mercy not only loved us. I thought about this. The incarnation, God acted upon His love in an ultimate sense. God could have been in been in eternity feeling affection for His creations, loving them and never having acted upon it, we would be just as lost as though He didn't love us. But God did love us. And that's most perfectly demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I think His disciples were saying. In fact, I wonder if that's not what He means later on when Peter, when He says, I'm going away. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I go with you now? And Jesus says, you can't go with me now, but you will come, you will come later. You will follow me later. I, in the context of this passage, I began to wonder, did that mean, Peter, you can't die now, but you're going to die later? Or did he mean, Peter, you have not yet experienced the fullness of the love of Christ that will lead you to die like I'm about to die. So no, you can't come right now. You'll come later. Because through persecution and suffering and even martyrdom, you will learn to, to love the ones who are killing you. And then you will be prepared to follow me where I'm going at this moment, to the cross. That's when you'll follow me, Peter. Finally, we love our enemies. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was a demonstration of God's love. So if I'm to love others, my enemies, like Christ loved me, I'm to die for them. I'm to love them even while my enemies hate me. I've had a small taste of that in my life. When I tried to do the right thing for somebody and it was hard and it was a struggle for me as well and it was crushing and humbling for me and my spirit as well. And even while I tried to do the right thing according to the scriptures, I knew that I was hated, not just angered, but hated by those in who I was actually loving. And I can tell you, the taste of that broke my heart because I wasn't pitying myself in that moment. I was thinking of, of how Christ must have feel, felt dying at the hands of many of those whom he loved who were themselves striking the blows against him to take his life, mocking him as he hung there upon the cross on the behalf of God's people. Matthew 5, 43 and Luke 6 as well both speak to those verses, we shall love our enemies. Jesus says, you have heard that it has been said that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. That's reckless. That's reckless. By our point of view, you know what happens when you love your enemies? They think, they think it's weakness. And they, they exploit it. And they will overcome you and spy and work around the angles. And they will destroy you. You better be careful loving your enemies. Jesus says, love them. Well, the only way I know to love my enemies is to be so convinced and full of the love of Christ for me that there is absolutely no fear in what my enemies can do to me. The best they can do is take me out of this world which introduces me into the fullness of the presence of Christ. So come on, enemies. Just keep loving you. That's the most reckless of all from the world's perspective. But when you've beheld and experienced and embraced the fullness of Christ's love for you, 
as he says in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. Love is perfected in us. So here's the question this morning as you stand. Do you know that God loves you? Do you love him? Are you loving one another? And will you love your enemies? I think that's essentially what Jesus was communicating to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And if we'll do that, let me say this with my heart. If you and I, together as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we'll do that, uh, the world will know that we're his disciples. I won't have to go buy a T-shirt that says I belong to Jesus. I won't have to put a Bible verse on it or put a bumper sticker on my car. Wherever I am, if I'm loving in that way, the world will know that that's must be a follower of Christ. Because we've not seen people loving like that anywhere in this world. And the only references we have to that kind of love are those references that are cited in the Word of God. I believe with all my heart, if we, if we will seek to behold and to apprehend and to experience the fullness of the love of Christ in our lives, the natural outflowing of that will be that we will love him. And then in loving him, we'll begin to love one another in radical ways. And that in loving one another in that way, we'll be emboldened and encouraged to love even those who hate us. And I think that's going to be really, really necessary in the days and weeks and years to come. Because more and more we're being hated for standing upon the truth. You're going to get mad going to lead a protest to preserve your rights? Are we going to love them? Are we going to love them? That's, that's the challenge. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the love of Christ shed abroad and for us and in us through the Spirit. Lord, forgive us for where we have neglected to seek you out. Lord, forgive us for where we have come before you in prayer with cold hearts and walked away from that not even sensitive to the fact that we have just essentially insulted you for we have come to you with words and no heart that was Jesus accusation of the religious leaders so father help us this morning by your grace would you open our hearts to your love and Lord having beheld that love would you help us to be faithful to love according to what we have seen there and according to what you have said and done in our own lives. And Father, I pray that in our loving you that we would also love one another. Lord, when we look around at one another today, we are all works in progress as it were. There is one sense in which we are redeemed, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ and forever secure. But Father, there is a sense also in which these things are being worked out in our lives today. And I pray that when we look at one another, we would understand that. And that that alone might remind us to love our neighbor, for he is in the same place that we are in. And he is bought by the same blood and by the same sacrifice. Have your way in these moments, Father, of invitation. We invite not folks to come to us, but for folks to come to you as you are speaking through your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.